Thank you for joining us today for the preaching ministry of Dr. Chris Aiken, Senior Pastor of Inglewood Baptist Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Inglewood is a dynamic ministry reaching Eastern North Carolina and the world with the timeless truth of the gospel. For more information, visit us online at inglewoodbaptist.com. Now here's Pastor Chris with today's message. And let me kick off our series on Christmas promises this way. Christmas, I don't know if it, how it is for you, but probably is one of the most anticipated holidays that people have on their calendar. I mean, there's hardly a child that goes around that's not looking for something cool rather than a sock full of coal. I mean, and by the way, some folks are getting cold this Christmas. I've been told they've come to me by way of email and I'm usually the guest of honor. You figure out what all of that means. So uh, everybody's looking for something at Christmas. Uh, it's a time for families to gather together. It's a time to enjoy fellowship. It's a time to enjoy meals together. It's a time for all of these things. It's a big deal. Gifts are a big deal. In fact, I, I looked this week to just see what is the, what do Americans spend on Christmas? This year's projection, by the way, there's a supply chain problem. You can't get presents. That's what they've been telling us since long before Thanksgiving. You're not hardly going to be able to get presents. You ought to buy early so you can get it. This year, Americans are projected to spend a little over $859 billion, with a B, dollars on Christmas gifts this year. Now listen, that's not bad. That's just a picture of blessing. That's folks who've, who've been blessed, who want to be a blessing to others. That's a wonderful thing. That's a great thing. But can I tell you, presents weren't necessarily the big idea on the first Christmas. In fact, on the first Christmas, it really wasn't about presents, it was about a promise. In Luke chapter 1, verse 30, an angel makes an announcement to Mary and says that she would conceive and that she would bear a son and that she would name him Jesus. And then draws the connection, if you will, to a promise made in times past. It's in Luke 1, verses 32 and 33. It says, and he, Jesus, will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Now, we observe on full display here that God made a promise long ago and that that promise would not be broken. Hey, you can find broken promises all over the world today. But the promises of God will not, cannot, shall not be broken. Now I want to look back and I want to show you uh, one piece of that promise that comes from Isaiah chapter 9. I want to deal with the first seven verses and can I invite you, if you're able, would you stand with me in honor of the Word of God? Isaiah 9, beginning in verse 1, the Word of God says, I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You 
shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of the oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Pray with me. Father, even in these moments, even in these few minutes that we have together, would you help us to understand that this life that we live is but a dot in a cosmic novel that expands far as the eye can see, past and eternally into the future. Would you help us to recognize that you're in absolute control, and when you make a promise, you keep it. And would we find hope in that today? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you for standing. You be seated. Let me share with you, I want to show you a couple of different things from the text today as we look at three features on the unbroken promise of Christmas. Three features I want you to see on the unbroken promise of Christmas. We're looking at it uh, from Isaiah 9. Hey, if you'd like to follow along on an outline, you can do so. They're available to you on your church app, or you could text the word notes to the number that you see on the screen. We'll send you that outline. It'll come directly to your device, and you could follow along or fill in the blanks, or as some like to tell me, you could just try to guess what's in the blanks before it's there, and then click on it to see if you were right. It's kind of a game. It's like Tetris for grown-ups in church. And uh, anyway, it's a, it's a good thing. So let me show you these three features of this unbroken promise of Christmas. Number one, I want you to see with me that the promise of the Messiah was set in stone before the first sin was ever committed. The promise of the Messiah, the promise of a Savior was already established. It was already solidified. It was already set in stone before man ever came in, into being and before the first sin was ever committed. Jesus, friends, came to save us from our sins. Now, that's, that's literally what his name means. The Lord saves. And, and that's his purpose. But the plan, the purpose, and the promise of God was established even before sin entered into the world. Jesus came, but not in response to our sin, but as an answer to sin long before we ever sinned. In Genesis chapter 3, we find the first two people on earth committing the, the act of rebellion, the first human act of rebellion against God. We then see in, in Genesis, we then see God's judgment which resulted in broken fellowship, broken fellowship among man, broken fellowship between man and God. And we saw chaos enter the world. We saw a perpetual struggle that would ensure uh, and ensue and, and encompass every part of creation 
and every person ever to be born. And then we see God's answer to that in the ultimate defeat of Satan. You say, where did you find all of that in Genesis chapter 3? Most of it is encapsulated in a single verse that scholars call the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. Genesis 3 verse 15 says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. A conversation, a statement of judgment by holy God to the enemy, who says that the woman will give birth to a son who will crush your head. Though you'll strike him on the heel, he'll still crush your head, and you'll be destroyed. Rebellion characterizes humanity's existence over all of the following chapters. In fact, if you just pick up the story there in Genesis chapter 4, you find the first murder ever to occur on planet earth in the murder of Abel. You see the pervasiveness of sin in the world and the judgment of evil, how it had grown to such uh, such large extent, so much so that God said the entire world was given over to evil and he brought judgment on it in the flood in Genesis 6 through Genesis 8. Then you find the scattering of the people. You find a group of people who God said, go be fruitful, be multiply and fill the earth. And a group of people that said, we're not going anywhere. We're staying right here and we'll build a tower that gets us to God rather than waiting on God to get to us. And at this, this event called the Tower of Babel, you find God coming down in confusing languages and scattering people as if their promise would not be carried out. But do you know right in the wake of that, right behind that, God then commissions a missionary, his first missionaries in Abram. Genesis 12 verses 1 to 3, having scattered the people, God raised up and called out Abraham, committed to him a mission and confirming that this promise that he made has not gone away by the wayside, but that it was still active. Genesis 12 verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go forth. From your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse the one, the one who curses you and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed in you in your line in your descendants. There will be a blessing that will be for all peoples. This blessing would come through a specific called people and through a specific called line. And this blessing would be a blessing to all nations. Isaiah 7 verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son and she will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Do you see that this plan, this purpose of God before sin ever entered the world, before rebellion ever became a thing, before man was ever created, God had already made a promise and God had already made a way. And he was bringing it to pass, giving markers and indicators along the way so that folks like you and I would not miss the fact that God had something in store for us that was for our good and for his glory. 
He says there would be a sign and it would be an unusual sign. A virgin will conceive and, and give birth to a son. That's pretty unusual. But it was set to occur in such obscurity that many people might have missed it. She'd be a poor woman who lived a no-named experience and gave birth to a child in a stable. So there's a promise of a Savior, and the promise is made even before the need for a Savior arises. So what does the Savior promise to do for us? I want you to see that with me. Notice, secondly, the promise of the Messiah is one of restoration of what has fallen. The promise of the Messiah, what does Jesus do? Why did Jesus come? What does Jesus accomplish? What do we gain in our relationship with Jesus? Restoration for the fallen. Go back and look at our text with me. Isaiah 9 and verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, unless, you, unless you're just up on your ancient history in the, in the Middle East, the gloom that he's talking to you about here is related to the destructive exploits of the Assyrians. When the Assyrians came into that land on that side of the Jordan River, they destroyed it. They crushed it. They annihilated it. They moved the people that lived there and moved them out of their promised land and moved in others, Assyrians, who then would take over the land. And having sent God's people away and having brought their people in, it seemed that the promise of God was done and that there would be no hope for them to rebuild as they surveyed if they looked across their land there in the northern kingdom and looked around they would have thought there's no way we can bring this back to the way that that God had had given it to us and yes we were rebellious yes we had we missed the blessing yes we didn't understand and yes we forsook this but we still want it but while there was no hope in rebuilding, there was hope in a giver who could restore. Look at verse 2. This prophecy through the prophet from God, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. That's so confusing. What, or better yet, who is this great light? Who is this one who, that they'll see? John tells us, John 8, verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You ever been in a place that was completely dark? And suddenly just a, just a flicker of a light. Seems to illuminate everything. That's the picture of Christ coming into a dark world. There was seemingly no hope, no help, no anything. And yet Christ came in and he said, I am the light of the world. And you'll not walk in darkness any longer, but you'll have light. And listen, that's not just some future hope of light in heaven one day, but it's light in the world with them. The very presence of God in their midst. John 9 and verse 5 says, while Jesus says, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. 
Hey, friends, we live in a strange time, but no stranger than in generations past. No more odd than in generations past. Could you imagine a conquering army coming in and exporting you out of a land of promise that was given to you by Almighty God, moving you to the far stretches of, of, uh, of existence, beating you, murdering you? Oh, yeah, but Chris, it's really tough now. I mean, because so-and-so got elected. I mean, the Supreme Court's arguing about... Uh, yeah, I know it's tough on our side of the world. Hey, listen, I know it's tough times, but it's no more tough than in generations past. And we're not left alone to work through it on our own. In fact, what we could not do, God says, hey, listen, I've already done. I've already declared it. I've already promised it. It's a promise that shall remain unbroken. And by the way, it results in blessing. Look at Isaiah 9 verse 3. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Here's what he said. It's a picture of blessing. It's a picture of increase. It's a picture of the outcome of a promise. It's what happens when God gets involved and God does what you and I could never do. And God brings about such an overflow. Now listen, you may be thinking overflow, does that mean I'm going to get two special gifts at Christmas? I'm not talking about just stuff. I mean, I get that. But picture the joy of the greatest gift you could ever imagine receiving. And you got this year 10 of them. And here's what he said. You'll rejoice with such gladness of the harvest like that as men who would divide the spoil. As those who had walked in and found the greatest treasures of all the world laid before them and rejoiced over them. He said, your rejoicing at God's fulfilled promise will be even greater than that. Why? Because of who God is. Because of what God does. Because of what we cannot do on our own but God does on his own and on our behalf. Look at verses 4 and 5. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle, tumult and cloak rolled in blood for, will be for burning, fuel for the fire. You could just about as well say they shall take their, uh, they'll turn their weapons into plow, plowshares. There'll be no need for any more wrestling or striving. God's bringing peace in a way that they could never have gotten on their own. And God's bringing justice in a way that they could never strive for no matter how many marches or how much legislation. And God's bringing justice in a way that triumphs over all of that. And the promise will bring justice and put an end to strife and to struggle. How do you know that, Chris? Look at verse 6. For a child will be born to us and a son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. The governing, the uh, administration will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Wait a minute. How is a child born that we'll call Eternal Father? 
How is a child born that we would say is the prince of peace? Or even better, did you notice the cues right there in the first phrase? For unto us a child is born, speaks of his humanity, and a son is given, which speaks of his deity. His both humanity and his deity. There is, a, there, there is one mediator between God and man, the God-man, Christ, Jesus. He is the, he's the one, he's the only one. There's none like him. There's none that comes close. There's none that compares. There's none that was ever promised. There's none that can imitate him. He is the man Christ. A child is born and a son is given. And by the way, he doesn't just appear. He brings about the results that our hearts long for. Verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Now, hold on a minute. Just pause right there. No end to peace? No end to the extent of his administration? On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. How can this be? The, Lord, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The administration of the Lord will, of the world will be upon him. Say, oh, Chris, do you ever think we'll get to a one world order? Yeah, twice. Twice. The bad guys and then the one who's good. It's coming. And hey, listen, all of the world will be under his rule and reign. All of the world will be under his authority. All of the world will live under his administration. And he'll be a good ruler. A gracious God who lives not above us, but among us. Emmanuel. This child to be born in obscurity and spoken of before sin ever entered the world. Who will bring light into darkness and dispel it. Who exactly, who's exactly to benefit from his coming? Who is for that? Well, it would seem it's going to be Israel. Look what Isaiah said to them. It's about us. But I want you to see with me that the number three, the promise of the Messiah is for us and others. The promise of the Messiah is for us and for others. Now listen, pull up a chair. You don't want to miss this. Look at verse six with me. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Notice that the child is born to us, and the son is given to us. But the promise is for us and others. Where do you get that, Chris? How can you say that this promise is for someone other than just exactly who Isaiah spoke to? I want, you to, I want you to trace with me the hand of God. Go back to verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on he'll make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. This is a west of the Sea of Galilee, and, and it's part of the northern kingdom which fell. 
And the land had a number of inhabitants that were removed. The Jews were taken from there. The, uh, the Israelites, the people of God were taken from there. They were scattered. Why? One of the Assyrians' tactics uh, when they conquered land was to take the inhabitants and move them out to break up the the fellowship, the koinonia, the connection that they would have with themselves based on national and tribal identity, and then to bring in their people and to intermarry among them in order to destroy the power base. It was a, it was a common tactic for them. So here's what happened. The Assyrians come in and take God's people and scatter them to other places and destroy their land and bring in others, and it seems the promise is gone. But did you notice that in the trampling of the land, while the promise seemed threatened, God used the judgment of the land to launch His people into the land of others? So that, listen, those who were once far off would now have the hope brought near. Those who were once far off would have the land brought, would have the promise, the the Lord, the story of the gospel brought near to them. They wouldn't have gotten that otherwise. You say, how terrible for, the, for God's people who lived in not to leave. Probably, in, probably for about that long. You know, in light of all eternity, that's about the sum total of your life. Maybe less. And if you suffered that much, but you knew you were part of something good for that much, you'd be like, man, this was a good thing. Hey, by the way, God's never working with this kind of a perspective. He's always working with this kind of a perspective. He's not thinking about people that live in this room. He's thinking about people that reside all over the world. Do you know that's why we pause and pray for an unreached people group every single time we come together? For that reason alone, because while these people groups may have been new to you, they may have been new knowledge, even the name of the people group may have been a new idea for you. They've been on the heart of God since eternity past. Before Adam and Eve ever made their appearance, God had this people group on his heart. He's not surprised. You say, well, they weren't even in existence yet. How could he have had them on his heart? Do you understand that God sees all things in all places at all times, all at the same time? I mean, God's never looking into the past. Everything for God is present. God never gazes into the future. The future is to God. And this, that people group we prayed for, we just joined in a heavenly chorus that's been going for eternity on behalf of them. And here's a group of people that were scattered around the world that would never know of the promise of God through Abram and Sarah. And yet God saw fit to scatter peoples into places where they could sing the songs of their childhood. They could go back and rehearse the story of the patriarchs and the deliverance of their God, how he delivered them from Egypt, how he helped them cross the Red Sea, how he had brought the plagues, how he had brought redemption, how he brought manna from heaven, how he caused quail to land on the ground, how he brought water out of a rock. And they could hear those stories. They could hear of a great God in a land where they never would have heard before. And God scattered in sin. That's how we know the promise is not just for us, 
but also for others. That's always been God's plan. And it's always been the subject of his promise. You've heard this before. We, we live on the New Testament side of this story. We've, we've heard of things on this side of the cross. We can look back and go, obviously. On that side, they, they looked forward and went, hopefully. Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 2, verses 12 to 14. He says, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul's right there. I think uh, somebody was talking with me this week about evangelism. Do you know where the fuel for evangelism comes from? It's remembering that at a point in time in our life, we were strangers to the covenant of promise. And we walked around as those without hope as those who had no promise of God in the world. Verse 11, or 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace. Wait a minute, didn't Isaiah say he was the Prince of Peace? He made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Here's the point. What seemed horribly destructive in Zebulun and Naphtali actually paved the way for the light to shine and to be seen and to be understood. There are many others who grope in darkness desiring light, desiring truth, and they're included, listen, within the limits of the kingdom, the administration, the government, his government will expand eternally. There's nothing that exists outside the rule and reign of a sovereign God. And they're included in the limits of the kingdom of the Messiah. Isaiah 9 verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord, not the ways of man, not the wisdom of mankind, not the best plans of people like you and I, not the good behavior of those who do well, but the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. I don't know about you, but I'm grateful that the hope of the gospel does not depend on the, the, uh, the ability of compromise among the Congress. Aren't you glad that the hope of the gospel doesn't depend on the righteousness of a king on this earth? Aren't you grateful that the hope of redemption and restoration, the hope that comes in a Messiah, does not reside in the judiciousness of nine voices in Washington called the Supreme Court? The hope that you and I are to experience rests on a throne and it's occupied. I, I thought he would be seated. No, friend, he ascended from here and he's seated at the right hand of God, interceding for you and I. 
It's an occupied throne. Yeah, but it seems like he's gone to sleep at the wheel. The Lord is not slow as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not desiring for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He's, he's not asleep at the wheel. He's patiently waiting. For who? For those who've yet to experience the promise to come to experience it. Our God created a perfect world and our rebellion, our rebellion corrupted it in such a way that from our perspective, honestly, it seems unrecoverable. You look around the world today, you think there's no way we can get back to heaven. You're right. But we don't have to turn this into heaven. Heaven's coming. Heaven's coming down. God's taken over. And there'll be no limit to the expanse of his kingdom. Oh, Chris, that's just a promise. Yeah, but it's an unbroken promise. It's an unbroken promise. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote the words that we read in Isaiah 9. God brought a glimmer of light for us to see in a little town called Bethlehem. And we celebrate it every year in a season we call Christmas. In the midst of all the rebellion, in the midst of all the destruction, God sent his son and promised a victory in him over all the consequences of sin. Listen, I just said something to some of you today. See, it's victory over all consequences of sin. You may be sitting here today and you're thinking that promise is good, but not for somebody like me. That promise is good, but not for someone who's done what I've done. Not for someone who's walked away the way I've walked away. Not for someone who, who did and stopped doing the way I did. It can't be for me. I'm not worthy. Hey, friend, listen. None of us are worthy. We're not. Hey, there's nothing in our worth that provokes God to love us. But there's something in God's love that promotes our worth. When he adopts us, when he draws us, when he gives us his name, when he settles our debt with the payment from his son, you take on worth, not worth you earned, but worth that is given. How do we respond to a message like this? I think First of all, we have to acknowledge a need for saving grace. It, you say, ah, I've been saved, Chris. What's next? I've not gotten over mine yet. How did you get over it so quickly? See, the devil constantly likes to play my life on a loop and remind me of who I was and force me to rehearse to him, I ain't him no more. Excuse my grammar. Bad grammar. Good theology. We have to acknowledge our need for saving grace. We ought to acknowledge our need for sustaining grace. What keeps you in the fight? Knowing that God sustains. And for some, it's to receive His grace. To receive His grace. Chris, if God, if God can do all of this, and wouldn't he want to make his promise such that he would just, he would overrule my will and just make me do what he wants me to do? 
Hey, I see your logic, friend. I get that, but that's just not what he said. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. All those who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Why wouldn't God just override our will? Because when we yield our will, he receives worship. Would you yield your will today? I know it makes more sense to you and I as humans to try to fix it on our own. But if we understand that we can't, and we acknowledge our need for both saving and sustaining grace, and we receive grace, God's grace, then we respond in worship, which he greatly deserves. Would you pray with me? And Lord, even in these few moments that we have together, we acknowledge the fact that you are sufficient. You are, you're secure. You're the one who satisfies. You're the one who sanctifies. You're the one who sustains. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message has been a blessing. If today's message has prompted you to consider a next step with God, we would love to assist you. Simply drop by our website at inglewoodbaptist.com next or give us a call at 252-937-8254 and let us know how we can assist you. If today's message was an encouragement to you, let me encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you consume this content. That really helps us reach a wider audience with the life-changing hope of Jesus Christ. We hope you will join us next week. And until next time, may the Lord bless you.